Good afternoon. This is Greg Lois. Today is November 23rd. And if you're with us today, it's to talk about New Jersey workers' compensation. I'm happy to be here. Happy to see you. Uh, I hope everything's going well with you and you're looking forward to an amazing Thanksgiving. Uh, although things are a little tough out there, we've got a lot to be thankful for. And I just want to say at the very onset of this uh, presentation, I'm thankful for all of our clients and I'm really thankful for all of you for joining with us every single month as we talk about different topics in New Jersey workers' compensation. Today, we're going to talk about a topic which is near and dear to everyone's heart in New Jersey workers' compensation. That is really determining exposure. And specifically, we're going to be talking about permanent residual disability exposure in New Jersey. And we're going to really talk about when exposure should be evaluated. We're going to talk about how we do it. I'm going to be talking about what you should be expecting from your attorneys uh, and what the overall exposure is in a case and how that changes during the pendency of a case. Now, my goal today is to answer questions and give as much practical advice as I can uh, and so please type in any questions you have. This is a totally live webinar. I can see your questions pop up and I always try to answer as many of them as I can. Now, before we get into today's topic, I just wanna make a few announcements that are gonna be especially important for the people on this webinar. First, uh, as you know, I love to write about workers' comp and uh, I am the co-author of the LexisNexis Guide to workers' compensation in New Jersey. It's called the New Jersey Workers' Compensation LexisNexis Practice Guide, along with my co-author, Richard Rubenstein. Rick is a plaintiff's uh, attorney. I'm the defense attorney. We collaborate on this book every year. Uh, it came out a month or so ago, and this is really the how-to guide. It's intended for judges and attorneys, and it is written in a very formal legal style. It goes through every aspect of defending a case in New Jersey or presenting a case, and it really is meant as a legal reference or a treatise on the law. So uh, we uh, contribute to this book every year, and I'm very proud of that. I've been working with Rick on this since uh, 2015. Our first edition came out in 2016, and every year this thing gets a little thicker as we change or amend it or add or subtract. Uh, but I don't generally point my clients to this book as a great reference for them. And the reason for that is it is written in, for attorneys. It is really written as a legal textbook. Uh, it's what you would hand a brand new attorney and say, here's everything you need to know about New Jersey workers' compensation law. And that's what it's meant for. Uh, I've written something for our clients and our, uh, our, uh, our partners, or referral partners, and it's my handbook to New Jersey workers' compensation. And every year, I spend a lot of time um, adjusting, changing, and updating this handbook. This year saw, I think, the most extensive updates to the New Jersey workers' compensation handbook that we've had for 10 years. Uh, and there's so many updates, I have to read to you what we've changed for this year's edition, the 2021 edition of the handbook. Uh, first, um, it's organized, this is really not up the middle. This is not meant as an overall neutral view or independent view. This is really meant for claims professionals and defense attorneys. That's who this book is written for. This is really our operating manual. Uh, it's full of practical advice and it's definitely skewed towards defending workers' compensation claims. Again, the LexisNexis book, 
that's really meant for legal scholars, attorneys, and judges. This book is really our how-to manual. This is the one that we send to clients every year, and it's really intended to show you practical, with examples, how we defend a case. What are the best practices? Now, the reason I'm bringing this up is because we have a new 2021 edition. Uh, it comes back, we expect to get the physical copies back from the printer a week from today on Monday. And we're gonna start mailing these out to our current clients, our current refer referral sources. Uh, I'm also gonna offer a, a hard copy of this book to everyone who attends these webinars. So watch your emails. You're gonna get an email from me very shortly that's gonna include a little link. You click the link and we will send this to you in the mail. And again, this is really uh, the best accompaniment to these webinars because every topic in the webinar, it's a chapter in this book. And that's how we've been going through these webinar series. This year, a tremendous number of updates because a lot changed in the defensive workers' compensation claims in New Jersey. And I've got a little printout here of all the things we changed. So, uh, for example, in this year, uh, chapter six, we expanded the section on dependency benefits, how those are calculated, a new, a new discussion about partial dependency benefits. Also in chapter six, a new discussion on apportionment of liability uh, for successive employments. Chapter nine, a whole new, very expanded chapter on medical provider claims. And this chapter is going to incorporate the new case law that came out in October 2020. That case law is going to allow you to get a lot of your extra jurisdictional New Jersey medical provider claims thrown out. And in fact, we've been very successful at getting cases thrown out based on the new October 2020 case law change. Chapter 12 is entirely new this year and it is an entire chapter on COVID-19. Uh, New Jersey does have a presumption in favor of compensability for COVID-19 claims for essential workers. We go through in chapter 12, every single person who would be deemed essential, how those cases are going to be analyzed, whether as a traumatic event or as an exposure event case, and give you our practical guidance on how those claims should be defended, uh, what defenses to raise, what proofs you're gonna need, and how to be successful defending those COVID-19 cases. Uh, chapter 13 was uh, updated significantly to include new information about filing statistics and, and trends. That's our chapter on trial strategies and judgments. Uh, major updates to chapter 16, which is the Medicare Secondary Payer Act, uh, application to New Jersey workers' compensation cases. So those are your section 20 lump sum dismissal cases and what you need to know today using the best advice we have uh, with our new sort of best practices under the Medicare Secondary Payer Act. And of course, uh, throughout we've expanded and uh, updated all of the appendices and all the references to benefit rates to include the 2021 rates. So uh, a lot of changes this year, the most significant number of changes I've ever done in the last 10 years of publishing that book for clients. Uh, today, uh, we're going to send out an email to everyone who's listening here and everybody who's signed in to this webinar. So you could download an instant copy, uh, PDF copy, and if you want, I'm happy to send you out a physical copy, and those will start going out next week. Uh, so please be on the lookout for that in your inbox uh, with the link to either instant download or to request a physical copy. And we're more than happy to send you out a physical copy, which we usually accompany with our calendar, which of course has every single one of our webinars and learning events on that calendar. 
All right, now today is totally live. Please type in your questions to me as we jump into the meat of today's topic. I am gonna answer as many questions as I can at the end. I will only say your first name so you know I'm answering your question. I'll never embarrass you. Uh, please uh, ask your questions, it makes this so much more fun. All right, let's dive in. We're talking about permanency exposure in a New Jersey workers' compensation case. So let's talk first about timing. When are you getting your estimates and your evaluations from defense counsel in a New Jersey workers' compensation case? First, with us, you're always going to get it within seven days of referral when we send out our legal action plan and budget. Next, we're going to be, if the claimant, uh, the petitioner remains under active medical care, we're going to next send out a permanency evaluation when the petitioner reaches maximum medical improvement. At that time, we're going to say, look, the person has uh, finished active care. It's now time for us to address uh, permanency. Here's what our best guess is based on our experience. Uh, before and after permanency evaluations, we're going to update our estimate, uh, provide you with a new exposure analysis. Uh, as soon as we get a demand from our adversary, you'll certainly hear from us, uh, both uh, giving you our suggestions and our impressions and reactions to that demand. Oftentimes we'll say, they're crazy, that demand is out of the ballpark, here's what the correct exposure is in this case. Certainly before we conference the case with the judge of compensation, uh, before any of those pre-trial meetings, we will be sending you a pre-trial or a pre-hearing uh, status update. In that status update, we will always address exposure. Uh, certainly after we have a conference with the judge of compensation or a pretrial meeting with our adversary or opposing counsel, we will tell you, hey, here's what the impact is, here's what the change has been. And the, the main theme I have to tell you is that your defense counsel should be telling you all the time how exposure in the case is changed, what's impacting it, why it's changing, so that you can be adjusting your expectations of what's going to happen at the end of the case. Uh, we do not simply, uh, or I do not believe it is best practice for defense attorneys to sit back and say, well, I'll give you my exposure analysis once I get my opposing counsel's demand. I really don't care what the demand is. The case has a specific value to it, if it has any value at all, and it really is independent of whatever the demand is. Uh, so you should be expecting your defense counsel to be giving you constant updates uh, many times throughout the life cycle of a case in which we are providing you with an updated estimate. It's too late uh, if they give you their first estimate of exposure, for example, after they've already attended the pretrial conference and the judge has weighed in. Uh, that's not really uh, an advocate. That's just someone who's reporting the news to you and saying, here's what the judge said, what do you want me to do? Uh, that's not the position we take here. All right, how do we estimate exposure in a New Jersey workers' compensation case? Well, it's pretty simple. In most of the scheduled loss of use sites, things hands, figure, hands, finger, feet, toes, eyes, ears, um, blindness, uh, there are specific values that come from a simple chart. Now the truth is nobody uses the charts anymore. Everyone uses the OSCAR calculation system. OSCAR is a computer program which is free to download from the Division of Workers' Compensation's website. Uh, you use it on the website. It's, it's very simple, it's very light, it's very easy to use. And the OSCAR program really gives you extremely accurate calculations based on the scheduled loss of use chart. You can also use, uh, use OSCAR to calculate permanent partial disability. So think about your non-scheduled sites. I'm talking about the neck, the back, psychiatric claims, respiratory claims. All of those claims can also be evaluated uh, using OSCAR. It's really just a calculation tool. It doesn't give you any input or boundaries for what the case is actually worth. It's just 
how we're doing it. So we're just really talking about the nuts and bolts of that. Remember, this is New Jersey, and in New Jersey, stacking is a real thing. You've got to be really beware in New Jersey of multiple body part cases. The more body parts the petitioner can stack up in their case, the more that um, settlement exposure is going to go up. Multiple disabilities do not run concurrently. They're added together. And so uh, relatively minor hand, foot, knee, ankle injuries combined with other injuries, uh, which again might be very mild or very minor in context, when you start adding them together, the exposures can ramp up very significantly. Within the uh, permanent partial disability findings, so again, now I'm talking about non-scheduled loss of use body parts. I'm talking about the neck and the back and psychiatric claims, respiratory claims, neurologic claims. There really are very well-established ranges that these kinds of cases fall within. Uh, generally speaking, uh, defense counsel should have, as a rule of thumb, uh, very good ideas about, A, what this injury is going to ultimately be worth, and then B, what kind of input we're going to get from the judge of compensation. We're going to weigh who the judge is, who our adversary is, uh, what kind of experts we can expect them to get, and then what we would expect our expert to find. Uh, so in general, <clears throat> the how we estimate exposure is using this very simple tool called OSCAR and then using the experience. Those two things together will give you a very accurate picture of what the monetary exposure will ultimately be at the resolution of the case. What kind of jurisdictional factors impact this exposure analysis? Because remember, uh, as I've always said, when a claimant comes forward and a claimant's attorney says, oh, but Greg, I've got this MRI, and this MRI shows uh, two-level disc bulge, so that's worth X, Y, or Z. And I'll always say to them, that's very cute, that's wonderful, but we don't compensate MRIs. We don't compensate x-rays. We don't compensate record reviews. We compensate petitioners. So we really need to look at them holistically. All right. So when we're thinking about what is the ultimate exposure, we need to know things like what is their pre-existing disability. In New Jersey, you get a dollar for dollar credit in today's dollars for any pre-existing disability that we can demonstrate. Now, the big thing about New Jersey is you don't have to demonstrate a work-related disability. You can show just any disability. It doesn't have to be a specific work injury. You can just say, well, yes, uh, this person had a knee injury at work, but they had pre-existing arthritis in the knee, and that had some disabling effect, even if it's a minor effect, and we will get the credit for that. Again, a non-work-related disability, we get to take a credit for that in the New Jersey courts, and that's due to a decision in a case called Abdullah. Uh, that's why it will often be called the Abdullah credit when we're talking about it. Voluntary tenders or advance payments of compensation will reduce your overall or offset your overall exposure. It will no longer truly uh, offset the cost of petitioner's attorney's fees on that, but it will enable you to prepay some of that exposure. Section 40 is the section of the New Jersey Workers' Compensation Law which enables us to take a dollar for dollar credit up to the cost of litigation for any civil recovery that the petitioners able to obtain on their own. So if they get uh, a motor vehicle accident and they bring a separate third-party lawsuit or a civil suit against the actual tortfeasor, we get a dollar-for-dollar dollar credit for that, uh, uh, less, of course, the cost of litigation. So essentially, uh, petitioner's attorney's fees plus $750. Um, other things that impact, New Jersey still has a functioning second injury fund. Of course, it used to be called the 2% fund because it was 2% of every premium went to fund New Jersey's second injury fund. Now it's more like 9 or 10% of all premium. Uh, but the second injury fund is still alive and well. And in a total disability case, 
your defense counsel should be pushing to find some amount of disability ascribable to some pre-existing cause so that you get contribution from New Jersey's second injury fund. And that serves to reduce exposure. Of course, impacting exposure is going to be the judge and the venue where the case is listed. Uh, we have found that throughout the state of New Jersey and our practices throughout the entire state, there are absolutely differences based on which judge you get and where the case is venued. And we often tell clients there's two New Jerseys. Um, sometimes there's this misnomer that there's three. There's North Jersey, Central Jersey, and South Jersey. No, there's not. There's just two New Jerseys, North and South. Uh, we think that the uh, the line of demarcation is about the Raritan River, so about midpoint through the state, Middlesex County, Union County is probably where the demarcation is. And we can tell you that based on our experience, uh, cases in regards to permanent residual disability are generally worth a little bit more down in South New Jersey, so places like Camden, uh, places like Atlantic City. We find opposing counsel be just a little bit more predacious, and we find that uh, case exposure values are just generally a little bit higher down there. You can also, by the way, parenthetically, expect to see more uh, claims for motions for med and temp in South Jersey than you'll see in North Jersey, just how it shakes out. And again, these sorts of differences between North and South Jersey, venue by venue, judge by judge, that's where you're going to really expect your defense counsel to explain, hey, this is why this case is worth this. It might not be worth this everywhere, but based on this judge and based on the venue, this is what we think this case's ultimate exposure is going to be. Again, we're just trying to give you everything you need to make a very informed business judgment about whether this case should be settled or tried. All right. I hope that was a useful overview, and I hope I got everybody excited about getting a copy of our 2021 book. Again, we're very proud of it this year. It was very extended. I'm happy now to answer as many questions as I can in the time remaining. Uh, let's take a look and see if we have any questions. Come on, guys. This is saying no questions, but I can't believe that. This is one of the most fun topics, right? We're really talking today about exposure. We're really talking today about uh, how much we're going to pay for a case. Uh, sometimes I get questions uh, that will talk about the same injury in different courts and why is it worth more in one court than another. Or sometimes we'll talk about the fact that depending on opposing counsel, how they work up the case, uh, will have a huge impact on the overall exposure in case. The other thing, of course, will be the choice of experts. Uh, we'll often come to you and say, you know, this is a case where maybe uh, we want to go after uh, or pursue a lower settlement value based on their experts less credible than our expert. And in general, I think we get more credible experts. All right, I'm going to give this one more chance. I'm going to open up this uh, questions pane. I'm not seeing any. All right, so either uh, this was a fun overview. Uh, okay, uh, Danielle asked the question, Greg, how often can we get a permanency evaluation? Well, the answer is there is no limit. In, under the Workers' Compensation Act or the rules as to how often you can get a permanency evaluation. In general, we only get one, though. Uh, this is very much in contrast to other states where you might get four or five IMEs during the course of a case. Often you're fighting just to get the claimant to MMI. It generally doesn't happen in a New Jersey workers' compensation case, and the reason it doesn't is we're getting to choose and pick the treating physicians who are usually uh, moving the petitioner forward curatively towards maximum medical improvement. So uh, for those uh, claimants, uh, in general, our doctor, who is the captain of the ship, is going to push them towards maximum medical improvement. After that, that's when we're getting our permanency examination. In general, we're only going to get one. 
And my recommendation is only to get one in general. And that's because uh, the more permanency evaluations you get, and particularly if the evaluator is changing their opinion over time uh, based on maybe correspondence or communication you're having with them, the less credible the judge of compensation is going to find them. So unless there is something truly new or different that has happened, we generally say you're stuck with your independent medical evaluation, evaluator's finding of permanent residual disability. And our advice is generally not to go and shop for more and more IMEs. Usually we just get one. If you're gonna get a second one, my advice would be to wait some time and have some kind of medical development happen so that there's some credibility towards it. All right, uh, Danielle says, can you talk about dependency claim petitions for COVID workers? Sure, it's pretty simple, deny them. Uh, there is a presumption that says an essential worker is deemed uh, to have a presumption of compensability that the COVID is work-related. Just because it's a presumption doesn't mean it's not a rebuttable presumption. And in fact, the statute says it is a rebuttable presumption. So we still are looking for some direct causal link between the employment, the workplace, and that illness and that infection. Now we know that COVID's quite prevalent, it appears. Uh, it appears to be in pretty much every different type of uh, uh, employment that we defend. It doesn't appear to be really related to any one employment more than the other. Although if you were to make the argument, I would suggest that maybe the medical setting, um, uh, the judge should be more likely to find that to be occupationally related. That being said though, we are disputing the COVID-19 claims that we're defending despite the presumption because the claimant, uh, we can overcome the presumption of simply saying, well, no judge, cause, there's no causal relationship if they, they contracted this somewhere else. And then we're off to the races and at least we have an opportunity to try to resolve that matter amicably. Um, all right, Jim asked the question, Greg, why do uh, the uh, petitioner's attorneys seem to look for second injury fund contribution rather than the carrier? What does the injured worker have to gain if this uh, if second injury fund uh, liability is found? Great question. Uh, the answer to that is uh, we will almost never file directly for second injury fund relief because in order to file for second injury fund relief, we must certify that the claimant is permanently and totally disabled. I never want to put that in writing unless it's a foregone conclusion. Uh, and so in general, we're going to push our adversaries opposing counsel to file for second injury fund because they have no problem certifying that the person is totally and permanently disabled, which is the first or the threshold question that has to be asserted so that the second injury fund can then be brought into the case and found exposed or liable for some portion of the pre-existing disability. So that's the reason that it's almost always the injured worker's attorney who's gonna bring that, uh, that claim. Um, Joanne says, Greg, I've tried to obtain a 10% credit for pre-existing osteoarthritis, but the judge would not provide a credit unless the petitioner had a prior award. What would be the value for pre-existing osteoarthritis? I know it depends on the venue and judge. I am in South Jersey, by the way. All right, Joanne, uh, there's absolutely nothing, uh, no, no legal standing for the judge to argue that you don't get a credit unless you can demonstrate a work-related disability. Now, oftentimes when we assert a, a, a right to a credit and we say, look, uh, yes, we injured this person's knee, but judge, they had pre-existing arthritis and, and that's why we should get a credit of 10% or 20% or 30%. The judge will say, yeah, but did that impact their working ability? 
In other words, were they working slower? Did they have a helper? Were they, did they have their job changed? Was there some accommodation? Uh, were they working light duty at the time of the new injury, uh, the one that we are demanding a credit for the pre-existing disability? And, you know, generally we want to show those things. But if we're able to show prior pathology, prior treatment, prior radiographic, x-ray, MRI testing that shows some uh, pre-existing degenerative change, you should prevail in that case in getting at least some credit for the pre-existing disability. And so I would disagree with that uh, position that the judge is taking there, that you have some sort of duty to show a prior work-related disability. It does not have to be work-related. It can be uh, just from their activity of daily living, uh, the natural effects of aging, congenital condition, et cetera. All right. Uh, Ryan asked the question, do you always need medical records to prove an Abdullah credit? Not necessarily, but it really helps. Uh, and so we are generally saying, unless we can show something on some type of medical record somewhere that this person had this complaint, it's going to be more difficult to show that we are entitled to that credit. Now, if we get a, for example, a knee injury where there's been an arthroscopic surgery and we get the post-arthroscopy uh, operative report and the operative report says, yep, this person had a meniscal tear, comma, superimposed on, you know, all sorts of uh, uh, chondromyelitis and, and, and degeneration and meniscal degeneration and all sorts of other findings in the operative report. Well, that's going to be your standing to argue, judge, there was stuff going on here in the past. So even your current medical records can sometimes contain those references and be enough to establish your right to a credit. But never abandon the credit. Uh, the credit is at least an opportunity for leverage during negotiations. And remember, just because a judge of compensation tells you, Joanne or Ryan, hey, I don't see this as a credit. I don't see this as a pre-existing condition. You know, you've got to show me something that this was work-related. That's why we have trials. Uh, you know, oftentimes I'll tell clients, look, when you've got something that you're trying to introduce into a case and you know, you're going to need a maybe testimony of the petitioner, testimony of your IME physician, testimony of the treater that's going to establish that there was a pre-existing problem. That's why you have trials. You don't need to finish the trial to get that testimony, at least before the judge of compensation, and push that issue. Uh, but my advice is not to give up on issues like that. The Abdullah credit in New Jersey is an incredibly powerful way to reduce exposure because it's all in current dollars. All right. That's all the questions we have. It is almost 1230. Um, next month, I am going to be doing a uh, risk transfer presentation. We're going to be talking about the other way to reduce exposure, which is to get that money back, get reimbursed from the proceeds of a civil action. Thank you, everybody, for joining me today. I hope you have a wonderful and happy Thanksgiving. Bye now.